The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Dennis. In today's podcast, England celebrate going through to the knockout stages of the World Cup after beating Slovenia 1-0 thanks to a Jermaine Defoe goal. What can I say? Come on, England! Come on, England! Come on, England! We'll hear reaction from the Guardian's football experts. They had a period about a quarter of an hour in the second half where they were really good. And we'll hear about the inglorious return of the French national team after exiting the tournament. The events that unravelled in South Africa have really brought shame on France internationally. Also in today's programme, the budget. The Institute for Fiscal Studies warns of a prolonged period of pain from George Osborne's cuts. The second thing the IFS say is that the spending cuts that are going to be necessary in order to achieve this deficit reduction are going to be brutal. And scientists begin pumping hot water from the rocks of Weirdale in the eastern Pennines. Well, the water that comes from this hole is going to be used to heat the, the village that's going to be developed on the site of the former cement works. Johnson starting to get forward more and more. Barry. It's Milner. Defoe tries to get there! Jermaine Defoe scores! England has the breakthrough they desperately need. They're on their way. I'm with celebrating England fans in the Rotunda, an upmarket bar in the same building as the Guardian's HQ in London's King's Cross. It's been a baking hot day in London. They've got all the doors open overlooking Regent's Canal. England flags festooning every available space. Let's find out what some fans think. What can I say? Come on, England! Come on, England! Come on, England! <laughs> I thought they played great. I thought we deserved to win four or five nil. Yeah, I thought we did well. You know, they looked like a completely different team. Looked like they actually played like a team. Still not got very good players, but we won, so it's all good. I think 1-0 after a lucky, lucky, lucky goal. Essentially, if they'd have saved that, then it would have ended 0-0 and we'd have been out. So, therefore, I think that they've got a long way to go yet. Uh, totally different. I can't believe Esky come on, but we got through. Happy days. Yeah, what do you think of the goal? Bit of luck, really. Straight at the keeper again. Yeah. But it went in, so happy days. Are you happy then? Am I happy? Am I happy? Oh, lads, am I happy? Oh, Igloo, we love you. Oh, Igloo, we love you. And I've managed to find a few Guardian journalists among the crowd here when they really should be at work. Paul Lewis, what do you think? Uh, well, I think, you know, it's good that we won, but we didn't win very convincingly. And, you know, first half was okay. And then we just faded, and to, to win 1-0 in a game like that, lots of missed chances, just doesn't really bode very well. Rob Booth? Great that they're through, but quite disappointing the way they played in the, at the end, you know. Uh, and Rooney just didn't look very well. Look, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens on Saturday now. Vikram Dodd? It was incredibly nerve-wracking all the way through. I mean, 1-0 against mighty Slovenia is not exactly what you had, what you would have sort of ordered up before um, the tournament started. Team on the pitch at the end. This is a pitch that you know nobody would have picked. You know, Heskey. If you're bringing a Heskey on, what was the point of that? Anyway, it got through, and um, at least at least they get through to the knockout stage. Barry Glendening, can I have a quick comment from you? Uh, I'm delighted for the English football team. They uh, covered themselves in glory, playing for a draw with 10 minutes to go. 
uh, the sign of a truly courageous uh, team with serious aspirations to win the World Cup. I'm, there isn't a doubt in my mind they'll go all the way now that they're world beaters again. Barry Glendenning and Guardian colleagues hard at work downstairs in the Rotunda Bar. Back in the studio, Barney Rone from the Guardian's team of sports writers is here. Barney, a Jermaine Defoe goal and a huge sigh of relief for England. I guess so, a relief to get through to the next stage, but let's not forget England have now finished second in the group, which, if they're really serious about progressing further, should give them a harder run-in from here on in, so they're going to have to start playing a lot better. Do you think that England managed to assert themselves uh, in this match in a way that they hadn't done against the USA and Algeria? They definitely did for periods. They had a period about a quarter of an hour in the second half where they were really good, and they played at a high premiership uh, pace, and they're all over Slovenia, but... You know, at the end of the day, they were all over Slovenia and uh, much sterner tests await them. How did uh, Fabio Capello change the team uh, compared to the last two matches? Well, he had to pick some other players because when defence, Carragher was suspended and Matthew Upson came in and did very well. The only real change was uh, having Defoe in up front in place of Heskey, which actually it's, it's a man-for-man substitution, but it totally changes the way England play. They can't play their... Uh, sort of long ball game to to give Heskey something to fight for up front because Defoe's a very small man and instead they have to play to feet and, and that was very good for them. I mean, England are a bit like a pyromaniac with a box of matches with Heskey. If you give it to them, they will do something terrible that in the end isn't very good for them. So they need to have small players on the pitch. And what did you make of Capello's decision to take Rooney off uh, in the second half? The Rooney was injured. He was, he was limping, so he had to come off. Um, I don't think it was a tactical move at all. He doesn't want to take Rooney off. Rooney's his best player. And uh, hopefully Rooney will be fit for Sunday. Fabio Capello has claimed that England could reach the final. Do you think, do you think uh, that's a, a vain hope? Well, it's true. I mean, England could reach the final, but the, the chance of doing so is very small. They don't look among the best two teams at this World Cup. They don't look close to Brazil or Spain. But funny things have happened in tournaments, admittedly not involving England generally, but funny things have happened before and, and you never know. Barney Rone. Well, England's hopes are kept alive, but spare a thought for French football fans. After open warfare in the French camp and a series of poor performances on the pitch, the team's returning home to a furious reception, as the Guardian's Kim Wilshire reports from Paris. Well, the reaction back home is one of absolute disgust, horror. Um, French fans are pretty disgusted, not necessarily about the team's performance on the pitch, although that's been very disappointing, but all the antics and the fiasco that's, that's gone on behind the scenes, which saw obscenities being thrown between player and manager, with the team going on strike and refusing to train two days before the South Africa match, which was pretty important. And we now hear the team being divided, with almost coming to fisticuffs, with some of them wanting to train, some of them not wanting to train. So I think the feeling is, is very much one of incomprehension and disgust and the disappointment uh, if uh, that's a bit of an understatement but it's it's reached the highest levels hasn't it the sports minister was uh, was out in south africa when when the team imploded and uh, was ordered by president sarkozy to stay on and bang a few heads together and uh, remind the team that uh, it was an honor to be wearing the french strip he's now planning to see thierry henry tomorrow morning at the elysee palace we originally thought that he'd summoned Thierry Henry to see him because he's said to be very, very angry about what happened in South Africa. Uh, this afternoon, there's also a crisis meeting amongst uh, what, that, that President Sarkozy has called with the uh, sports minister and the prime minister 
to uh, to discuss uh, what can be done about what's happened. It's, it's a feeling that the events that unravelled in South Africa have really brought shame on France internationally. Kim Wilshire. And don't forget, there's full coverage of the World Cup, including our daily World Cup podcast at guardian.co.uk slash football. My name's John Dennis. Still to come, hot water pumped from the Pennines to power a new eco-village. First, yesterday's budget. At Prime Minister's questions, Harriet Harman accused David Cameron of not being straight about the impact of George Osborne's budget. We want to do everything we can to keep police officers on the streets, to have money going into our schools, to keep up spending on our hospitals, and the only way we're going to be able to do it is if we deal with the problems of excessive welfare spending. So if honourable members want to see police on the streets, if they want to see well-funded schools, they've got to back us on housing benefit. They've got to back us on welfare reform. That's the way we can keep spending up. Britain faces the longest, deepest, sustained period of cuts to public services spending at least since World War II. That was the view of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the think tank that produces the most comprehensive analysis of the budget. It's also said that claims that the budget was progressive were debatable. The Guardian's economics editor is Larry Elliott. The first thing they've said is that the government is going to go even further uh, than it said it was going to do. It's going to overachieve, in the words of the IFS, in bringing down the budget deficit. So by the end of the current parliament, Britain will have a current budget surplus rather than a deficit. And if things go better than planned, that will leave the government with some scope either to raise spending or to cut taxes around the time of the next election. Obviously quite good news for the government. So they've really gone for it in terms of getting the deficit down. So that's the first thing. The second thing the IFS say is that the spending cuts that are going to be necessary in order to achieve this deficit reduction are going to be brutal. I mean, only in two years, consecutive years, since the Second World War has spending been cut in real, i.e. inflation-adjusted terms. The plans implied in George Osborne's budget, budget involve a cut for six consecutive years in real terms. So it's a long uh, period of time and they're going to be very deep. So the government is protecting health and overseas aid. By doing that, all the other departments really get clobbered. So there's 25% cuts over the period of the next parliament for all the non-protected departments. And within that, Osborne has said that he will try and protect schools and defence. So the IFS say, well, if you assume that they'll take a smaller hit, say 10% rather than 25%, then everything else could have a third knocked off their budget in real terms during the course of this parliament. That means housing, universities, policing, justice and so on. I mean, those are really, really big cuts. So that's the second area. And the third thing the IFS does, it it does what it's called a, a distributional analysis of the budget, which shows Um, which groups gain, which groups lose. And it does it by looking at each one-tenth of the population in terms of their income. So it it divides it up into ten equal parts, poorest to richest. And it questions the government's claim that this was a progressive budget. It does, um, because the government did produce some charts showing that in 2013 that the effects of fiscal policy overall were broadly progressive, i.e. the rich paid more than the poorest, or did did even worse than the poorest. Everybody loses, but the poor the poor lost less than most. But actually, there's this bit of a, a bit of a couple of sneaky tricks in there. One is that they included all the changes that had been inherited from Labour, which included the 50p tax rate. 
And the second thing they did, they only took it up to 2012-13, which was when um, the, the two-year increase in child tax credit ran out. So the figures look good up to 2012-13. We don't know what's going to happen after that. And we certainly know that that most of the reason that they look progressive up until then was what Labour did, not what the Conservatives did. If you strip out what Labour left behind, then actually these measures were regressive rather than progressive. Larry Elliott. The pump was switched on today of a thousand metre twin borehole system that will generate geothermal energy for a planned village. The Guardian's Martin Wainwright went to the eastern Pennines in County Durham to find out how it'll work. That's the sound of water coming up a well from deep underground in Weirdale at a place called Eastgate in Weirdale in County Durham, a very beautiful part of the world, but one that's seen a lot of industry. There used to be quarries around here and a big cement works, and it's now at the forefront of a new industry, geothermal heating, which is getting water from underground, which is already hot because of underground radiation in the rock, um, up to the surface and then putting it to use. And I'm with Professor David Manning from Newcastle University, a professor of soil sciences. Um, David, th- this, is, this is a first um, in the country, I gather. Um, and what, what, what is it to be used for, what, hopefully? Well, the water that comes from this hole is going to be used to heat the, the village that's going to be developed on the site of the former cement works. The idea is that we can take heat out of the water that comes from this borehole, use that heat, have a spa in particular. So you can spa? Go have, yes, <laughs> yes, ideally, so you can go and have a, have a swim in it if you want, and it's very, very tempting. But the, the point is that the heat energy can be taken out of that water to heat a village and heat houses where normally all heat energy has to be brought in by road. So it's a very sensible thing to use the heat that's there underneath the village for that purpose. And it's it's called an eco-village. This little village, would it be like a hamlet or would it be a cluster of modern houses with all the sort of sustainable stuff? The plans in detail have yet to be sorted out, but my understanding is that it's going to be used for a wide range of different purposes. There'll be places for people to live, but they're also, importantly, going to be places for people to work and for tourism as well, for the tourism industry. So it's going to be very, very much a mixed-use village to try to make sure that there's compensation for the jobs that were lost when the cement works closed. Is, is the water for heating going to be used directly as hot water or will it be coiled round tanks? I, know, I think they do that in Iceland, yeah. don't they? They heat the water there by, in that way. Yeah. There'll be a heat exchange system almost certainly because the water's quite salty. In fact, it's saltier than seawater. Really? Yeah, so, so there's a corrosion issue. And what happens in waters like that is that you can have heat exchanges which are corrosion resistant and the water that you actually use that goes around into people's houses is, is clean water, fresh water. The salty water, once the heat's been taken out of it, goes back into the ground to make sure it doesn't cause any pollution. It goes back down a second borehole and back into the granite where it came from. There have been geothermal experiments at the Eden Project down in Cornwall, another granite area, because it's, it's very heavy granite underlying the, yes. the top, top rock here, isn't it? And I think um, Southampton have done something, yes, Nottingham have done something... Um, what makes this this distinct from those and, and, and a new a new thing? What's different about this is that we're going into a buried granite, which you can't see at the surface, whereas the one in Cornwall you can see at the surface. We're going into fissures which we know have got water in them. That's something which again can be attacked in the Cornish granites, and I know that there are companies interested in doing that. But I think we're the first to actually produce water in this way, so that's what's special. We've shown that you can actually go into the granite and get water out of the vein systems and fissures that are in the granite and that it's warm. Mining is not, or drilling is not totally popular just at the moment um, because people have this idea of, you know, the, all that oil pouring out and will there be any left? Is, is this a scheme where you, as you say, you, 
after use, the water will be pumped back down again. Yes. It's, so it's a, a sustainable, constantly recycled thing. Or is there just so much water down there anyway that, and, that we're not going to have to worry? I think we've been very surprised by how much water is down there because when we've done the pumping trials, you'd normally expect the water level to drop, but it's actually risen rather than dropping. So there's a heck of a lot of water down there. No one will be able to say how long it will last until we get cracking and do some long-term experiments, but it will certainly see me out. I'll be long dead before this resource is gone. Martin Wainwright reporting. The producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily was Tim Maybe. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.